0: Well, if you have been with us uh, over the last couple of weeks, the last three weeks in particular, you know that we are in a short little mini-series called It's All About Jesus, right? And today we'll represent the, the last in this little mini-series, the fourth uh, part of this series, in which we are going to various places in Scripture where the truth of It's All About Jesus just kind of falls out of the text uh, really without any any help or prodding, it just comes out as being true. And to make that happen today, we're heading to the book of Colossians. And so I'll invite you there in the New Testament, Colossians chapter 1, if I could ask you to meet me in that place. If you need a Bible this morning, Charlie's in the back. He'd be glad to share a copy of the scriptures with you. And there's a little note page in your bulletin. If you are visiting today, you might not be aware of that. Please pull that out as well. We just sang Amazing Grace, the last part of that song, saying, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. What a great, great line that is. What John Newton, the ex-slave trader turned pastor, was saying back on New Year's Day, 1773, when this song was sung for the very first time, was that the glory and majesty of Jesus is so magnificent that 10,000 years or 100 million years would not be sufficient for us to see and savor his preeminent glory in all of its fullness. We will forever be discovering, forever be learning new and greater dimensions of Jesus' person and being. And that's what... John Newton was really trying to say because he was of the conviction that it is all about Jesus. Amen and amen. Scientists and philosophers down through the ages have searched for what some call the theory of everything. One mathematical formula or uniting principle that explains all that is, all that exists, In our day, physicist and author Stephen Hawking has sought to give the world a definitive last word on this subject. So much so that in 2014, a movie, you may be aware of this, a movie was made about Hawking's life, shown in theaters everywhere. The title of the movie, The Theory of Everything. Despite severe physical limitations, Hawking has made it his life's work to find the answer to the theory of everything. Truth be told, I'm not sure that's going to happen for him. He is a a devout, committed atheist, has no room in his life for God. So I'm not sure that that will ever happen for him, that he will find the answer to his quest. But, But again, truth be told, I suppose all of us, are engaged in that pursuit in one way or another. People veil that pursuit in comments like, I'm just looking for the answer to my life, or, or uh, what's life all about, or um, I have to go find myself. You ever hear anybody say that? I really need to go find myself. You know, that's really code for, I have to find a reason to live that is bigger than me. That's really what the person is saying. I need a reason to live that's bigger than me. Philosophers, physicists, and the rest of us, we're all the same. Something deep within us needs a point of reference. A gravitational center of purpose that pulls all the fragments of life into a cohesive whole and makes sense of it. Ours is a dangerous, dark, confusing world. It seems to be wildly out of control. I mean, you just think about a daily news report that comes across the, the papers or the television screen. ISIS in London, North Korea taunting once again with their missiles, refugees fleeing their homelands, violence in our cities, political corruption, environmental issues, earthquakes and storms and droughts and epidemics. And that's just the news for one single day. In our world. Chaotic. And what do we think when we gaze through an electron microscope. And we, we see the world's complexity. At an, a, a subatomic level. Or we peer through the Hubble telescope. And we see more than 200 billion galaxies. Not stars. Galaxies. Human life. Love. Meaning. Destiny. Time, eternity. Is there anything that can make sense of all of it? Anything or anyone that would unify everything into a purposeful, fulfilling whole? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because there is, isn't there? Colossians chapter 1, where I've invited you to turn, God answers that question for us. Here in verses 15 to 20 of chapter 1, we are given by the Holy Spirit the answer to the theory of everything. We don't have to look any farther than right here. And turns out that the answer is a person, and his name is Jesus. Amen. And amen. It is all about him. See if you don't agree when we read these verses together. Beginning at verse 15. He might be preeminent. Your version may say so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Verse 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is all about Jesus, isn't it? Isn't it? Yes. Okay, church, great. Good, good. You know, in front of us is one of the richest, most incredible Jesus centered passages that we would find anywhere in Scripture. Many Bible teachers actually think that this may have been the words to a first century worship song. And it's not really hard to imagine a, a Christian's heart seeing these verses as they celebrate. Uh, the amazing facets of the person and work of Jesus that are presented here in these verses. And there is so much here for us that it is really going to be difficult for us to get it all done in this moment. I've taken as many as three weeks, many years ago when we were in Colossians, to, just to handle these three, the, the, this set of verses. We took three weeks. We just have one morning together. We'll kind of be like a rock skipping across a pond picking up what we can, but we're really going to just scratch the surface. And so, Holy Spirit, give us as much as we can hold. Amen? Amen? Amen. Now, before we're done, we will all be asked to confront a question. And the question is this, is Jesus prominent in my life or is he preeminent? That is a great question, isn't it? He doesn't just want to have a place in our lives, a little space carved out for him along with all the other things that are important in our life. He deserves to be in sole possession of the first place. Is Jesus prominent in my life or is he preeminent? We'll see where we get to with that before we're done. So let's step into this amazing passage. And and perhaps just the briefest little bit of background for us as we do that. Colossae, the town that Paul is writing to here, Colossae is located in the hill country of southwestern Turkey today. Asia Minor is what it was called back in the Apostle Paul's day. I have actually had the privilege of of going to Colossae uh, which today is, as you can see there, just a, a giant mound of dirt. That's what it is. Millennia of generations have built on the ruins of their ancestors and built the, the town of Colossae up onto this, this big hill. This is what it is today. There is no town there, no city there in this moment. In the first century, though, it was a thriving community, and a, and a church had been planted there. It had taken root, and the church was, was growing. And as is so common, Satan is never very far away when Jesus is being proclaimed and believed in. And so the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the Christians in this church in first century Colossae. And part of the reason he writes is because a false, a dangerous false teaching was seeking to work its way into this church family, a teaching that really sought to minimize the person of Jesus and the role that he plays in our relationship with God. Although the teaching is a little bit more involved than this, it basically puts forth three major, three major lies. First, that God didn't really create the world because in the view of these false teachers, physical matter is evil and God would never be the creator of something evil. So God didn't create the world. That's First, Second, since matter is evil, they argued that God would never have come to earth and put on human flesh because that would be evil. He wouldn't do that. So Jesus certainly isn't God. And because Jesus is not God, he's not the unique son of God. He's merely a spiritual emanation that came from God. One of perhaps hundreds or maybe even thousands that that functioned as intermediaries, go-betweens between God and his people. Those were the lies that the false teachers were trying to bring into the life of the church in Colossae. And the Apostle Paul just lays into these lies with the fierceness of a pit bull. I'm telling you, boy. And he does this out of his love, out of his desire to protect these Christians from this heresy. And so that's really from which the, the, the verses 15 to 20, they're born out of that, out of that context, and and as you look at your note page, verses 15 to 20 neatly and quite naturally will break out into two major sections, and you've already maybe noticed that as you looked at your note page. The, the first section, verses 15 to 17, the preeminence of Jesus over his creation, over all that exists, and then in verses 18 to 20, the preeminence of Jesus over his new creation, which would be. All of us, the redeemed community, the, the church of Jesus. So Jesus is going to be supreme over everything that exists. And he's preeminent over all that he has redeemed. Or, or maybe to say it another way, he has first place over both the cosmos and also over the church. He is Lord of everything that he has made. And he is Lord over everyone that he has saved. Those are the two main thoughts uh, underneath this umbrella that we find in verse 18, that everything, everything points to him. He is, what's the word? Preeminent, right? That he might be preeminent. So let's unpack this together for a little bit. The first truth that about Jesus that the Holy Spirit declares through Paul's pen, and also there on your note page, is that Jesus is God, Right? That's the first truth. Paul doesn't mince any words here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, images convey meaning way beyond what words can actually describe. When we see, for example, the Statue of Liberty as a picture, in this case with the Freedom Tower rising in the background, boy, without any words, we, 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 get, we experience something within us. When we see that image. Or, or the same thing happens with the, the indelible image out of World War II on Iwo Jima. We all are familiar with this picture. And yet, as powerful as these, these two images might be, they're simply representations of much deeper realities. The Statue of Liberty doesn't, in and of itself, do anything, it stands, though, for a nation. That is deeply committed to freedom. The American flag. thats a powerful national symbol for all of us. But only because it represents all of our national history. And what it means to be Americans. But listen carefully now. Jesus is not just a symbol of God. That's not what this verse says. He is God himself you believe that? Yes. Yes. The word image in the original Greek text is icon. And it means an exact likeness. Jesus is the exact visible likeness of the invisible God. He is God. All that God is made visible to us. In fact, made visible to the whole world. Some verses that would back this up. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God. However, the only God who is at the Father's side, who is that? Well, that's Jesus, yeah. He has what? Made him known. That phrase, made him known, means that Jesus unpacks for the world what God the Father is really like. In John chapter 14, verse 9, Jesus revealed this about himself He says, Whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. You look at me, you've seen God. That's what Jesus said. And in a parallel passage, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's a pretty good word picture, isn't it? Years ago, um, I brought a Christmas message in which I said that Jesus is God In a bod. And uh, someone was offended by that when I said that. Said that it lacked respect, they said. Which causes me to wonder why I would say it again here and risk that one more time. But I did. The, The better way to say it would be, Jesus is God with skin on. Right? That would be better, I guess, to say that. But what a beautiful word picture that is. Jesus is God with skin on. And that's what the first part of this verse 15 is trying to convey. Well, the Holy Spirit then next says in the second half half of verse 15 that he's uniquely the son of God. Jesus is not only God, he is the firstborn, we read, of all creation. Now, Jehovah Witnesses believe that this verse teaches that Jesus was a created being because he's firstborn and therefore he cannot be God. Now, that would be a 21st century variation on the heresy that was threatening the Christians in Colossae, right? No different between, no difference between what the Colossian Christians were dealing with and what you and I would be dealing with here. And it's kind of like what the Old Testament through Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun, right? Same old thing, just repackaged. Now, this phrase, firstborn, is not speaking about one who was born first chronologically. That's not the text at all. Now, in the New Testament, this word is most often translated as, as heir or as owner. In ancient times, it meant the ranking one. It meant the, the first in position, not chronologically, but by position. In place, And so here's two examples that make that point. For example, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 6, we read, and again, when God brings the firstborn into the world, who's that? That's Jesus. He says, let all God's angels worship him. Why does God mandate that the angels worship the firstborn? Well, it's because Jesus is first in rank, isn't he? He's first in position. He is God's son. The angels better bow and worship him. And then in Romans 8.29, For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are, who are redeemed by, by grace through faith in Jesus We are in the process of having our characters transformed so that we more accurately reflect the person of Jesus who is first in rank. He's first in position. Oh, that we would reflect his character. Yes? Because he's what? He's first. And that's what the verse is saying. He's God's son and therefore First in honor and position. Then comes verse 16. And the Holy Spirit loudly proclaims the preeminence of Jesus over his creation. By declaring that he is the creator of all things. All things. If anyone was unclear about how firstborn should be understood in that previous verse. Man that's put to rest here. Because Jesus is the supreme creator. He is first in rank. Because he made it all. Verse 16, for by him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. you recall the familiar words that opened John's gospel? Maybe you've memorized these verses. In the beginning was the word, that's Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. Verse 2. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. All things were made through him. And without him. Was not anything made. That was made. That's just a. That's just a repackaging. Of Colossians 1.16. Jesus is not a created being. Not a mere human being. He's the creator of all things. Making him outside. And above all things that exist. All that is not God was made by God through the creative power of the Son of God. Jesus is the creator of it all. It is all about Jesus. Yeah? Because the false teachers taught that the physical world was evil, they thought that God himself could not have created it. Well, Paul declares otherwise. What Jesus makes back in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 is declared to be good. Remember that? And not just good, but... Very good. Sin corrupted it. Sin infected it. Sin distorted it. But it was created good by a good God. Paul further explains that all the thrones, powers, rulers, and authorities, whether on earth or in the spiritual realm of both the visible and invisible worlds, they exist because Jesus made them. And they are under his authority as the maker of them whether we're talking about mankind or whether we're talking about angels or even the demonic realm. Since the false teachers gave undue worship to angels as being emanations from God and, and they were determined to put Jesus in this group as just one more emanation. The Holy Spirit through Paul here quickly puts everything right where it belongs under the authority of the creator of it all, Jesus. He has no rivals. The highest angelic powers are subject to Jesus. Whether they're seraphim or cherubim and they're worshiping God and and crying out holy, holy, holy all of the time or whether they are demons or even Satan himself, Jesus is in authority over it all. The earthly realm of kings and, and presidents or any of the rest of us being subject to him, man, that just goes without question. Everything ultimately answers To Jesus, it is all about him. And not only has Jesus created everything, verse 17 tells us that he holds it all together, doesn't it? That's what that verse says. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, the writer of Hebrews said it this way. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by what? By the word of his power. By the word of his power. He is before all things. Paul wants to make sure everybody knows that Jesus made everything, but chronologically he was before anything that existed. He does this to ensure that biblical Christianity doesn't slide into some kind of pantheism where God is in the creation and the creation is God. No way. Jesus was before it all. That's what the declaration says. Before all things. And in him all things Hold together. That's our answer to the question we asked earlier. Is there anyone? Is there anyone who can hold this crazy, dangerous, chaotic, seemingly out of control world together? Is there anyone who can do that? Yeah. What's his name? His name is Jesus. The verb hold together. It's key here. It's in the perfect tense referring to a past action that has an ongoing effect. The idea here is an action that takes separate parts and unites them together and binds them and holds them. That's the idea. For example, the earth holds the moon in orbit by what? By a gravitational power, right? Right? And, and the sun holds all of the other planets in our solar system together in, in, in synchronous orbit by gravitational power. And, and the Milky Way holds our solar system in place in our galaxy. There are immense gravitational powers that unite all of these apparently uh, separate entities into one. And if that power wasn't being exerted, what would happen to all those entities? They would just fly apart, right? That's exactly how it would go. Whenever there's a separate entity united, there's always going to be some kind of a, of a glue that makes that happen. And so after describing every dimension of reality in the previous verses and making Jesus the causal agent behind all that exists, verse 17 takes it to an entirely new level. Not only is he the creative genius and power behind the existence of everything, he is the ongoing glue that holds it all together. As Hebrews 1.3 says, by the word of his power, he upholds the universe. And in him, all things hold together. Do not miss that little word, all, on your Bible page it's the same word in our phrase. It's all about Jesus. All means what, church family? All. It means all. It doesn't mean some, does it? It means all. There isn't a single entity that has ever existed that has even for a nanosecond been on its own and free of control by Jesus. There's never been even one rogue Adam That broke away and broke rank and and acted on its own independently of Jesus. That has never ever happened. Why? Because in him all things hold together. Do you believe it? It's true. It is true. He unites all realities. All categories, all dimensions, all people, all realms, all rulers, all kingdoms, all thrones, all presidents, all the living, all of the dead, heaven, hell, all of time, all of eternity, and everything else. He holds all of these together by the blazing glory of his own person and the infinite power of his mighty hand. He is the defining reality of everything that exists. It's all about Jesus. Amen. He's the reference point for everything. His beauty defines what's ugly. His truthfulness defines what's false. His holiness defines what is sin. His wisdom defines what is folly. His love exposes what is hate. His judgments are the final word and say on everything. He's the plumb line of everything that is true. He's the middle sea of all that is beautiful and good. Everything that is, is what it is. In relation to who he is. No matter how much it embraces him. Or struggles to be free from him. It is all about Jesus. He's preeminent over his creation. That would be 15 to 17. But the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there does he? He wants us to know that Jesus is preeminent as well. Over his new creation. And who's his new creation? That's us, right? That's you and me in relationship to him through faith in, in, in Jesus Christ. That's, that's, this is verses 18 to 20. And with verse 18, the focus shifts. And the creating Jesus becomes for us the reconciling Jesus. As he, by his death and his resurrection, brings sinners back into a relationship with God. See if you don't agree as we read it one more time with that focus. Verses 18 to 20. Look at your Bible page. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The first thing we're told in verse 18 is that Jesus is the head of the body. And what is the... Head of the body. What is the body? It's the church, isn't it? The church. It's us. And it only stands to reason that the one who saves sinners by his death and resurrection and places him in this amazing thing called the church, it only makes sense that he would be the head of it. Clearly the Holy Spirit's using a, a word picture, a metaphor of, for, for us when he uses that expression. Jesus is the head. I mean, think in terms of our own human anatomy for a moment. Our nervous system from the tips of our fingers to the bottoms of our feet, everything moves towards the center. It meets in the spinal cord and then it runs directly up the spinal cord and into the brain, right? That's how our bodies work. Everything, every command, every instruction, every impulse that is a part of our physical body flows from the head And everything from the body flows back to the head, right? It's a great picture of how this this thing called the church is to work. What a great picture for who Jesus is to us. When Jesus is the head of a local church, everything flows from him through the Holy Spirit to his church. His redeemed sons and daughters receive everything from him, saving life. Spiritual power, understanding of his word, wisdom, passion, direction, hope, love, it all comes from the head. And then everything flows back to him from the body to the head. Worship, thanksgiving, prayer, submission, service, sacrifice, and love. A church that never forgets who the head is is going to be a healthy church. Would you agree with that? On the other hand, those who forget who the head is. Well, those are churches that are going to be in trouble for sure. Paul continues. He is the beginning. He's the first born from the dead. And by saying that Jesus is the beginning, Paul means that he's the source. He's the cause. He's the, the starting place for the church. He's the beginning. And this perfectly fits. If you remember the scene in Matthew 16 when Jesus asked his disciples one day, hey, who are people saying that I am? And you remember, Peter steps up and he says, wow, Jesus, you are the the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You're the Deliverer. And do you remember what Jesus says to Peter? He says, Peter, you're absolutely right. And on this truth of who I am, I'm going to do what? build my church i'm gonna i am gonna build my church on that truth and hell will not prevail against it the church is jesus creation he built it and paul is saying to the false teachers in Colossae, for that reason alone he should be worshiped he should be adored he should be first but not stopping there paul then connects the beginning of the church with jesus resurrection He's the firstborn from the dead. And firstborn here, again, should be understood exactly as it was back in verse 15. First in rank, first in importance. We know that there are several resurrections that are mentioned in Scripture before Jesus rises from the dead, right? On, on Easter morning. So he's not the first one to ever be raised from the dead. But those were nothing like his resurrection. His resurrection is the leading one. It's the primary one. It's the greatest one. It's the most essential one. His is the resurrection that conquers the grave. His is the resurrection that put death to death. The resurrection that makes spiritual life and forgiveness of sin possible is Jesus' resurrection. He is the firstborn from the dead. It's all about Jesus. The Apostle Peter puts it this way, 1 Peter 1 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Please don't miss the relationship between verse 15 and verse 18. In verse 15, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. In verse 18, he's the firstborn in the resurrection. He's the one who imparts new spiritual life. He gave everything life, and now he imparts spiritual life. It's all about Jesus. The Christians in Colossae could not have missed the point. Far from Jesus being a minor emanation from God, as the false teachers were trying to say, a small player in a cosmic drama of what it means to be in a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is saying it He is. Everything, everything that matters, that really matters. Leading Paul to say at the end of verse 18, that in everything he might be, what's the word again, church? Preeminent. Would you allow me to hold off on talking about that for just a moment? Because that really sits as the capstone over this entire section. So can we hold off and come back to it? And you say to yourself, Boy, we're not going to stop you, Tim. It's, you're, you're in the driver's seat. We'll do whatever you want to do, right? Oh, great. Thank you for letting that happen. Verse 19. We discover that, that it gives God the Father great pleasure, great joy to have all of his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. This phrase, all the fullness, is actually a technical term that the false teachers in Colossae were using to refer to the sum total of all divine power and attributes. Everything that makes God, God. That's the the fullness, if you will. And so Paul steals their own word and he uses it eight different times in this letter to show the believers that Jesus is fully God. It pleased the father to have all of himself dwell in, not around, not upon, not under him, but in him. And that word dwell means to take residence. It points to the incarnation. And the actual word that Paul uses here refers to a permanent dwelling. If you look across your Bible page to chapter 2 and you find verse 9, Paul says much the same thing there. He says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells, what? Bodily. In the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ is God and no one else can make that claim. And then the preeminence of Jesus over his new creation. It's impossible to miss in verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Brothers and sisters, this has has been God the Father's great, grand, wonderful, sweeping plan from the very beginning. To reconcile. When Jesus, in concert with the Father and the Holy Spirit, created all that exists and called it very good, and then sin entered in and and marred and corrupted it and, and brought death upon creation, it has been the Father's plan to reconcile back to himself what sin had stolen. That's been the plan from the very beginning. The word reconcile, it's such a wonderful word. It it means to restore a broken union or to reunite a relationship after estrangement or, or to settle a disagreement. And the most beautiful definition, to bring back together parties that have been separated. That's reconciliation. And although we can't really tell here from our English translations, Paul uses the most intensified Form of the Greek word reconciled. That he can get his hands on. So it would read. If you were a Greek speaker. It would read. That through him. Thoroughly. Completely. Totally. And permanently. He reconciled. I wish that could be captured in our translations. Because it would let us know. How great the heart of God is. Through Jesus to save us. Thoroughly. Completely. Totally. Totally. Oh, and did you know that every place in the New Testament where reconciliation between uh, sinful mankind and a holy God is mentioned, it's God who's taking the initiative every single time. It's never the sinner who recon- who initiates reconciliation, not even once. Here's just one illustration of that. Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It is from first to last a one-sided affair. God, through Jesus, does it all. He offers his Son. And all you and I can do is respond to the offer. It comes from him. He's the reconciler. And what has God done for us? Well, that's the last part of verse 20. Making peace by the blood of his cross. And I suppose we could find no better commentary on what that means than to look at the next two verses in the passage. Verses 21 and 22. Here's what they say. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, you were sinners lost. He has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Reconciled. As a 100% flesh and blood man, Jesus could fully identify with all of us. But then, because he's also 100% God and sinless, he can rightfully step in, motivated by love, and stand in a sinner's place and bear their punishment for them, for the sin in their life committed against a holy God. Death, physical and spiritual, is what sin pays. Jesus can pay the debt because he's 100% man and 100% God. God has decreed that Jesus' death, his sacrifice, can be applied to my life any sinner's life who will admit their need for a Savior and that Jesus is that Savior. When the sinner does this, this part of the verse, verse 20 says that that Jesus makes peace. He makes peace. He restores the relationship, brings reconciliation and forgiveness between the sinner and God. And we say amen and amen. The cross is the ultimate proof that there is no length, that God will not go to reconcile us to himself. That's the truth. It would never happen. It could never happen if Jesus was not who he said he is and who he has proven himself to be. It really is all about Jesus. Is it not? And this is the ultimate point that Paul wishes to make to his Colossian Christian friends who face the threat of this false teaching about Jesus, We go back up to verse 18. That in everything he might be. What's the word? Preeminent. Why would he be preeminent? Well, we've just been told why. He is God in verse 15. He's uniquely the Son of God in verse 15. He created all that is seen and unseen in verse 16. And He is the glue that holds it all together in verse 17. He is the head of the church in verse 18. The source and the risen one in verse 18. He has all of God dwelling in Himself in verse 19. And He is reconciling us to Himself right now. He is preeminent. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> that word preeminent means to, to hold first place. And though not recognized as such by most of the world, this is Jesus' rightful and deserved place in all that exists. Preeminent over his creation. Preeminent over his new creation. His firstness extends to everything in heaven and on earth, seen and unseen. But you know what? That, at least for me, is is pretty big, pretty expansive for me to try to get my head and my heart around. I need to bring all that down to something that is much simpler and more personal, down to a single question. The question there at the bottom of your note page is Jesus prominent in my life or is he preeminent? That is the question that is begged from this passage. Church family, Jesus does not want a place in our lives, He wants all of it, right? He doesn't want some space granted to him, something that he shares with all the other important things in your life and he's just one of the the, the compartmental spaces in your life. He doesn't want to just be prominent. He wants to be, he deserves to be on the basis of all that we've been talking about. He deserves to be in sole possession of first place in your life and in my life. Does he have Firstness today. Preeminence. First place in my family, in my marriage, in my profession, in my time, in my money, in my entertainment, in my recreation, in my conversations, in my play, in my parenting, in my reading, in my music, in my prayer, in my worship, in my service, in my church. Is he first? If there is one reason that IBC must hold Jesus preeminent in our hearts, it is because now more than ever we need the unity that that shared passion for the preeminence of Jesus gives to us. Do you understand this? It is absolutely imperative that we be united around the preeminence of Jesus. I don't believe for a single second that my leadership is going to unite this church family. Or that, or that our, our excellent elder team will, will, by their shepherding oversight, be able to hold this church together. Or, you know, we have wonderful staff, but they can't make us one. And we have a small army of volunteers here in the Bible Church who who make all the various ministry opportunities possible that we enjoy together. But these will not produce a unified church. If we put our hope in any of those things, we will eventually be disappointed and we will divide. What must we do, IBC family? What must we do? We must make Jesus preeminent. Not just prominent here. Preeminent. He must be what we're all about because anything less dishonors him and it endangers us. We must let him do what he's really good at at, and that is hold things together. If we hold him high, if he is first in our lives personally, in our marriages, in our families, first in our relationships, and first in our church family life, we will know his favor. We will make a significant difference for him in Idlewild, and others are going to want him if he's preeminent in us. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Leaves no doubt that Jesus is preeminent. Yes? It really is all about Him. May it, we be a people, may we be a church, where that is never, ever in doubt. Amen? Let's pray together. What a joy, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Father, to share these verses together, even though we just barely scratched the surface of them. What a joy today to be reminded that you are preeminent, Lord Jesus. You're above it all. You are before it all. And all of it exists for you. We exist for you. Thank you for your reconciling work that makes it possible for sinners like us to be united forever with the living God by your death and by your resurrection. May that truth be deeply settled in our hearts today. And we don't just want you to be prominent, Lord, we want you to be preeminent. May it be so for your glory for the advancement of your cause in Idlewild and beyond. We ask it in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen and Amen.